Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Du. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of a sentence a day. Life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Woo! We're back here. Where's the applause? Oh my gosh, my applause was so slow today. Okay, well, here it is. I don't know. There's some kind of... There we go. I'm firing. I am firing our audio technician. Oh, wait. That's me. So, hey, I we're doing this live on a Friday morning, and that's cutting it pretty close because Friday is also the day that I upload the podcast. So we don't usually do Friday, Friday podcasts, but this is super exciting to me because it's all about my favorite topic, which is horror, especially the favorite horror movies of 2023. And I cannot wait to start chopping it up, as some of my favorite podcasters say on Girl That Scary Podcast. But before we do that, of course, we have to talk about, you know, what's going on. Tell you what's going on. What's going on is Halloween is what's going on for me. I am super adrenalized because I finally recovered from New York Comic Con. And that's a whole different topic. had a great time, but I was so beat when I got home that last night my energy kicked back in again. I finished assembling the seven foot Borg that we got to menace the local neighborhood children. And it's out on the balcony now with the crow and all kinds of spooky stuff. We have a couple of different tableaus. One downstairs is a cemetery 
And upstairs we have the Borg. And are we still having that witch? Is Michelle still going to be our witch on Halloween, honey? Uh, nothing has changed to my knowledge. Well, we're going to have a witch yell, talking to people. It's it's going to be incredible. What's going on with you, honey? Well, you know, most of it, I had to drive down to, to San Diego on and back on Wednesday to take uh, puppy back to her. Uh, and I'm trying to get into a groove with uh, the Star Wars novel. Mm. Uh, on Monday, I handed uh, Larry, actually on last Sunday, I handed Larry um, the rest of the book in skeletal form. So it needs to be fleshed out. But now he, we both are on the same, can be on the same page about what the book is and how it can go. And understanding where we want to end then suggests some things about what needs to happen with the texture of characters and events before then in order to make that really pay off. But at the same time, the scary thing is working on the Star Wars book because I'm definitely in that dark night of the soul place where I've got a lot of text. It's too late to go back and make major, major, major changes, and it's not working. I mean, what I know is that this is the point where it feels like it's not working. It's well, that I absolutely can guarantee you that that's not true because you're, <laughs> you're using the life writing method, which part of which is outlining. And I've been watching this grow since it was a little baby outline and it's there, baby. I would have told you if it wasn't there. It's no, thank there. you. I, I, I appreciate that. And, and, you know, that's the, you know, how you get through the dark night of the soul. It's faith. And it's faith in your companions, you know, yes. so there's faith in your opinion. Yes. Faith in myself that, you know, what Stephen King refers to as the boys in the basement, that un unconscious competence, you know, writer part of my personality knows what it's doing. And that, you know, I'm trying to create something in alignment with the universe, something that actually has some good depth to it, some good sinew to it. So I'm trying to be of service to my community. So that to me, that's, being of service to the universe, that's faith in a higher power that I, that if I am committed to being of service, it gives power to who it is that I am. So I can trust and we'll just continue, continue working, continue that, you know, the, the belief that there is light, that I'm heading towards that light, that, that light I'm see, heading towards is not a train coming in the opposite direction. <laughs> <laughs> no, it absolutely is not a train coming no, in the opposite this is, direction. This is just, you know, it's just, the fear, you know, it is just the the only way to avoid this fear that I know of is to write hack work, is to write work that does not push you, to write something that you already know you can do. You know, to me, the art part is when you're a little scared by the project, you know, you've never done anything quite like this or that it's this important or within this frame of time or about this subject, so that there's something new Every single time that you write, you're looking for the thing that is new so you can, you know, rip the callus off of your creativity and bleed into the world again. It's you know, inexact metaphors, but it is kind of the way it feels. Yes. But at any rate, so there's that. And I'm glad that it's the weekend. But what I'm hoping to do is to get enough work done today that I feel like I can chill on the weekend. Please you know. do. I worry about that a little bit. You have a tendency to work right through the weekend, and I think yeah, it, I know. it carries a tax and a toll. So well, just be careful like I said, about I that. I will try very hard to to get in a really solid, you know, blisteringly effective work day today. You will. If you I absolutely will. Then I'll be fine. 
You absolutely will, darling. And a special note, this podcast drops on October 22nd, which is my father, John Dorsey Dew Jr.'s 89th birthday. So that is pretty incredible. And I'm really excited about that. And if my sound effects were working properly, <laughs> we would have lots of raucous applause happening. I don't know what is up with my my sound. Oh, 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 really? It's, no, no, it's too late. It's too late now. But anyway, he's 89. And I just opened a box of the hardcover of the reformatory for the very first time as I was literally on my way out of the door on my way to New York Comic-Con. It is a beautiful, beautiful hardcover with such incredible blurbs. I mean, the blurbs, I, Stephen Graham Jones calls it book of the decade on the cover. S.A. Cosby wrote Do at her best. Victor Laval called it a straight-up masterpiece. I mean, I'm just blown away by the blurbs. Well, and it took you seven years, honey. You were writing, you were addressing the core of your being there. I was. I was digging down into the marrow for absolutely sure. And and the thing that I'm so ha- happy about is that when I read my dad the blurbs and told him the book was on the way, he said, the due name lives on. And I was like, oh, I'm really glad he feels that way. Because, you know, as we get older, we like to know that we've made an impact and that our legacy will be a lasting legacy. Dad, I love you. Happy birthday. And the reformatory comes out October 31st. I really should plug that. You know, it's it's right around the corner. And you, believe me, you'll be hearing a lot more about the reformatory before this is all over. But just wanted to let you know. I mean, other than that, do we get into the topic of our podcast? Yeah, I guess we can. There's no reason that we can't. Okay. Well, you know, we can continue. exclusive on the Life Writing Podcast, our opinions about the best horror movies in 2023. That's right. Is it news or is it opinion? It doesn't matter because we say so. And that's why we're here. So I was looking at some of the lists on, and Variety had a list, Rotten Tomatoes had a list, which was much longer and included a few more questionable uh, films on that one, I would say. But this has been a really, really rich year, not just for literary horror, but for cinematic horror. A lot of these movies we actually saw in the theater. Some of them we only saw streaming. All of them a raucous good time, depending on what your definition of a good time is. So we can go back and forth if you like. I want to start with the one, you know, was it the scariest movie of the year? Was it the best movie of the year? That's up to you. But for me, in terms of personal impact, rewatchability, wanted to watch it with my sisters, The Blackening, directed by Tim Story. This is basically why. Well, let me see. A horror movie with a black cast playing with tropes having fun with racism as opposed to lynching as horror kind of themes that come up sometimes when when Black artists have an opportunity to do horror. Uh, swinging the baby in the bag? Yeah, oh, no, no, no. Oh, my God, no. Don't get me started on that. That was from a series. I will not name it. But if you saw it, you know what he's talking about. The Blackening, to me, the first way I knew I was going to love The Blackening was that our son Jason wanted to go see it with us in a movie theater. That is a rare thing for Jason to want to come to a movie with boring old mom and dad. 
And we all sat and had a great time. And I was just like, oh my gosh, not only is he here at this horror movie, but he's getting a Black history lesson. (laughs) He's learning about the lift every voice and sing, which is commonly known as the Negro national anthem. He's learning (laughs) like these things and facts that he has heard me talk about, some he hasn't heard me talk about. No, you don't have to be Black to enjoy this movie. Believe me, there are plenty of references I didn't get either. And many of the challenges the characters faced, I would have failed miserably at. But what I really appreciate about The Blackening is it's a great combination of humor and horror, which is not usually my favorite. Steve knows this. Horror comedy is not my favorite subgenre by it's any not means. It's to pull off. It's really uh, hard. You to have to, in order to, for it to work, you have to have real horror, real stakes, as well as comic timing and comic image systems. I, when it's done right, as in a Shaun of the Dead. Yes. Or even for that matter, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. When that movie was done, the monsters were still monsters. They weren't jokes at that That's point. That's true. So they were fresh from the Universal Lock, basically, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, you know, it was. They did something. The Abbott and Costello were kind of slightly in a decline. And then the monsters were kind of slightly in a decline. And Bela Lugosi hadn't worked in years. I mean, the truth is that that was only the second time he'd ever played Dracula. It was only two times he ever played the role. So doing that with a Shaun of the Dead or a Wan of the Dead kind of thing, you need something to generate fear when you have fear than to know how to peel off some of those screams and turn them into laughter. That's not easy at all. And the blackening, I thought, did a very, very good job. Of, of that, as well as making some statements that are not commonly made in, in, in genre or on screen at all. You know, it, it, it touched some live wires. It did touch some live wires, and I'll, we'll move on from this because we have so many movies on our list. But just really quickly, what I love about the movie is it starts out with teeth. There's some humor, but it really starts out with teeth as, as a movie must to show you, oh, we're going to go there. And then we pull back at Unspool's laughs until the literal final frame of this film. Just so much humor. Congratulations to Dwayne Perkins, who's a comic. He follows me on Shitter, as I call it. Hey, he changed it to an X. So Dwayne Perkins follows me on Twitter. We follow each other. So I had a chance to let him know, dude, so happy for you. Great job. What's on your list, Boo? Okay, I would, I'm would. i taking a look at the list that you did here, and I'm going to point to the ones that that stay in my mind the most. I liked Megan. Mm. Um, I thought it was fun. I thought it was scary. It wasn't anything we'd seen. We hadn't seen before. We kind of knew how it was going to end, I think. But this story of, an, of a robot child doll, child companion, is the best such story since Chucky. You know, and using mm-hmm. using science fiction, you know, when Chucky tried to use AI, it just fell apart. I felt sorry for Mark Hamill, who was doing the voice of Chucky in that movie. But Megan, uh, I think Megan works works very well. And I wouldn't mind seeing that little killer doll again. I, I thought, I think that they, I would prefer to have seen an R-rated than a PG-13 version of it. But I think that they still delivered enough scares for me to believe and then enough laughs, you know, at times for me to feel that they wanted to know that we were in on the joke. That that when filmmakers can kind of get you to a place where they're not taking it totally seriously, but they're taking it seriously enough, that's nice. That's a nice dance, you know, and they're winking at you. 
and but they're not winking at you so much that the scares aren't genuinely there. You know that little that little doll doing her dance out there was as interesting as Wednesday Adams' dance in that you know in 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 the in her Netflix series. It was iconic. Uh, wow, scary. I love I love your summary there, and I also want to add that the screenwriter of Megan is a former podcast guest, Akela Cooper who has done incredible work. So happy to see her emerging in horror and also was such a, a, a strong advocate for this striking WGA screenwriters, always on Instagram, on the line. Congratulations, Akela. Megan combines two things that scare the heck out of me in horror, which is scary dolls and scary children. And when Megan is chasing you, she looks like, a scary child. So either way, I'm happy. Whether she's a doll or whether she's a person, she's scaring the heck out of me for the whole movie. Yay for Megan. That was fun. Okay, so you pick one. The next one I think I'll pick. I know this is one that's not on your list because I don't think you've seen it yet. The Angry Black Girl and Her Monster. No, I haven't seen it yet. It is on Shudder. And I have to say, I mean, you know, it has to have something going for it if it's on Shudder, because Shudder carefully curates its films. I mean, you can always sort of bet, especially if it has a lot of stars, that anything on Shudder is going to uh, be fire. And the thing that's great about the angry Black girl and her monster is that while it has some of the sort of tropes of Black film we're very accustomed to, it takes place in the projects There are people selling drugs. Some of it is like, oh, so familiar. But on the other hand, they've created this protagonist in Vicaria, who is a brilliant teenage girl. She thinks death is is a disease that can be cured. And she is literally working to bring a loved one back to life. It reminded me a lot, frankly, Steve, of a pilot we wrote that did not get picked up called Wicked Ways. In fact, Mary Shelley is credited as story by... In this movie, even though the director is Bamani Story, um, and it is that. It's like a super, super smart girl who's an outcast because she's so super smart. Does that sound familiar? Sure. Who also is secretly rebuilding someone and creating her very own accidental monster. So the angry black girl and her monster is well-made. It has heart. And it has a ring of the familiar as a creator for me, a story that, frankly, I feel like I could have written, too. Cool. Well, I'll, I'll backtrack to Talk To Me. Yes. Because Talk To Me is a good, simple, solid horror film about a, gr- a bunch of kids. You know, you've seen it. You know, they're, they're using a crystal ball. They're using a Ouija board. Well, in this case, they're using a petrified hand to mm. to open the door to paranormal experience as a party game. And I believe these kids, and because I believe the kids, I believe in the increasingly ugly situation that occurs. The girl, the lead character, this one is black as well, a black girl in Australia. And what I will say is that what pulls the whole thing together is the last five minutes. And the and everything preceding isn't shabby either. You no, know, it, it all works well, but it wasn't until the end of the movie that I saw the entire pattern of mm, the film and yeah. appreciate what it was that they were doing. And a movie where the last line of dialogue uh before you cut to black, you know, knocks you back in your seat is something to be treasured. 
It really, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. It's by a couple of Australian twins named Danny and Michael Philip Pooh. Sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. I believe that's a Greek name. And they are not Black. So I think sometimes what happens when non-Black creators cast Black actors, sometimes it can accidentally or unconsciously or even consciously sometimes veer into trope areas so there were there are a couple little places where my antenna were up but all is forgiven because that ending is stupendous we rewatched it just recently and it more than holds up if anything i liked it better the second time because i think the first time i was worried about what they were going to do with this black protagonist and the second time i could just relax more and enjoy the movie In film, I don't believe in colorblind casting. I believe that there are roles within a film that can be cast colorblind, but that the roles that are chosen that way say some things too. What you can and cannot do, where you can and cannot go. So looking at this movie, I understood that there were probably some reasons why you could cast a black actress in this role, but I did not feel that they went in any offensive direction with it. No, I I wouldn't call it offensive. There were some times that they could have walked off the cliff, but they didn't. And I appreciate, I appreciate that. So basically it really was one of those, you know, move, we talk about the movie from the other world. The alternate universe. The alternate universe where race is not a determining factor in behavior and class and the way characters are treated. It was really more one of those in a a lot of ways. And I, I congratulate them for it. They have created, I consider, a modern horror classic. Talk yeah, to it's me. really good. I don't know whether or not they would need to expand the mythology to do a really effective sequel. I think you could do kind of a, an entertaining sequel. Yes, but but they need they need to go deeper. You know, yes. and I don't know whether or not they're prepared to do that. But anyway, and they can't do the same hat trick. They would not be able to recreate right. that same that. hat trick. But so what, what? if you haven't seen Talk to Me, run, don't walk to see that one. Right. Another one we actually went to see in the theaters, although it was a limited release, and I knew next to nothing about it. Everybody just kept saying, oh, my God, this is so good. This is so good. If you like the dark and the wicked, this is for you. If you like Hereditary, this is for you. Enough said, because I love both of those movies. I went in knowing so little, I didn't realize the movie was in Spanish. (laughs) It's an Argentinian film called When Evil Lurks. The director is Demian Rugna. And it is, you can tell immediately, this is not a Hollywood, Hollywood production. The actors just look like regular people to me. But the premise is super scary and really super convincing, in part, I think, because the the actors look like regular people. It's almost like sinking into a documentary as much. So what, what is that premise? Well, I don't want to give too much away, but I will just say this. The premise of When Evil Lurks is that... This is a world where possession happens not regularly, but enough that people understand that possession is like an infection that can enter your community. And what a bunch of people have to do when they move out of denial and decide to deal with their possession problem. Would you say that that sums it up, I think that that is useful. I think it's also useful to kind of take the position that this is a world in which 
possession is has become so commonplace that the film could legitimately be considered apocalyptic. Mm, nice. Oh, look at you adding the texture and depth. Do yeah, go on. Yeah, it's you know they they didn't have the budget to make it totally explicit, perhaps, but the implications are that society is unraveling because mm. of these events, and these mm. are people living in the outskirts of that, trying to maintain some normalcy in a world that has gone is going insane. This is insanity. This is as a matter of fact. It's it's not even sort of the Christian exorcism model. It no. felt almost Lovecraftian. There was mm-hmm. something from you know hyper, you know super normal going on. There's something not of our world happening here, and these people are were desperately trying to maintain something of sanity and normalcy in the light of this. And it was it genuinely creeped me out. It is worth the hype. Many of you won't be able to see it in theaters. Like I said, it was on a limited release, but I do believe it is a Shutter exclusive and is streaming on Shutter. Yeah, I would like to go from that to a movie that did it wrong, which is The Exorcist. Oh, you know that the new Exorcist believer. It just blew it. I mean, it it did not. It to me, it did not really believe in its premise. Whereas the original film, this was made by people who I think believed in their premise. I think that this new one was made by atheists. I mean, who are kind of pretending or dressing up as if they believed in in it. And they would use this trope and that trope. But when it came right down to it, I did not feel the kind of conviction that would lead you to feeling like you could really trust that they were giving you a piece of their of their heart. And even though there are some aspects of the first movie that haven't aged well, what you can see is that this was an A-list movie right down the road. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Max Van Sydow and Ellen Burstyn and, you know, Carl Marlden, I believe, was and just these were were top level actors, a top level director, a top, you know, that everything Everybody brought their A game, whereas this remake felt as if Blumhouse, it felt like a total cash grab. You know, there were some scenes that were effective, but I never had the sense of conviction. I don't believe, I don't believe anybody associated with this believed what they were doing. They believed what they were saying. So it was, it went from a a statement of faith, sort of, which is what the first one was, to a monster movie or not even really that it was it was just oddness to me it, it they just they just blew you know i forget who it was that said it you know how do you oh it was john carpenter how do you mess up the exorcist you do it by being by lacking conviction i mean if you make peter pan you better believe you know that you can fly they didn't believe this you know, and it's a good thing we're talking about this because this is a movie a lot of people are talking about. It's a bit controversial, in fact. Some people have walked away from the theater going, this wasn't so bad. Why does everybody hate this so much? It's not even the worst Exorcist movie. So if you're a completist, you absolutely are going to see it no matter what we say. Here's what I liked about it. I liked the fact that it was centering a Black child and her father. That The first hour of the movie, I was really sitting there thinking, Huh? Everybody's hating on this movie because they're black. But then as it began to unspool and unravel, 
I realized that I do agree with Steve that it's the exorcism part they had not thought through. They had thought through a bunch of the other stuff. They had not thought through the part that most people would have come to see, which is the exorcist, the exorcism. There was no plan. There was, I mean, I won't go into spoilers, a wasted use of a former cast member. And frankly, the, there's a little white girl that's also in the trailer. I'm going to just go and say it. They underdeveloped that family and that character to such a degree that it hurt the film. It was almost like opposite world because usually it's the black girl and the family that would be underdeveloped. You know, but- you know how it feels to me? It feels like at some point they were writing this and it was just one child. Ooh. And then they decided to cast a black girl. And so they added felt, a second white girl. That's right. They everybody was feeling very woke and very this, very that. But underneath it all, they could not empathize with that child as much as they empathized with Reagan. So they brought in a little white girl, and now you've got your attention split. Now you have two families to develop, and they they didn't have the creativity to do that. And then it fractured, you know, between you know, in, in terms of the exorcism, we won't, we won't go into that right now. But my feeling is that this is not a movie from the opposite, from the alternate world. This is a movie where I can feel that the race of that girl mattered to these people in some ways that did not serve the film, and probably that they were not even totally aware of. Mm-hmm. But by not identifying with her soul and her heart and her flesh in the same way that we empathize with that little girl Reagan in the first film, their attention fractured. They were trying to do something good and they were trying to do something new. And instead of that, they simply did something forgettable. Ah, well, there it is. And take it or leave it. As I said, if you're a completist, you're going to see it and and have your own opinion. And you can also leave us a voicemail on, on the site. You can see how to leave us a voicemail. Let us know what you think of the the new Exorcist. By the way, I want to mention that when Evil Lurks will start streaming on Shudder on October 27th. So if you're going out to look for it now, it's not up yet, but it will be up later this month. Is is Whose turn is it? I lost track. Oh, I think it's my turn. I get to talk about let me see. Let me look at these in the list. Let me talk about Knock at the Cabin. That's what I figured. that was based on the novel by another former podcast guest who uh, is Paul Tremblay and his novel was Cabin at the End of the World. Changed the title to Knock on the Cabin. M. Night Shyamalan was the director. And I have to say it's one of my favorite Shyamalan movies in a while. The simplicity of the storyline, I think, really helped. The the root story from the novel really helped and i thought it was a, a a very good cast it's tense it's a tense story in fact it was so tense i told paul on the podcast i couldn't even keep reading the book because i was worried about what would happen to the family and um but in a movie theater i just had to sit there and take it and overall i think it, it was a, a strong scary film i think it was but i think that there was a misstep and I'm I'm torn about this a little bit because you have to both look at a film for itself and also look at it in social context. And because the leads in it were gay, mm. the climax of the film, I listened to what some gay people said about it. And I, I, I it's it's difficult. I'm going to dance around this a little bit because I, I don't want spoilers. But right. I can see the point that if 
those characters had been black and you had shifted the world in a comparable way, which would be difficult to do, but in a comparable way, the, the meaning of the final actions of the film would feel very different and they would feel uncomfortably familiar. Interesting. And that is also, honestly, that the, the way the characters were depicted in the novel was so convincing. And because they were gay and therefore marginalized protagonists in horror, I was very sensitive to everything that was happening to them. Right. Identifying almost as if he had chosen to make them black. It's like, right. oh, I, I, I'm, I'm rooting for them so hard, you know? <laughs> and yeah, that's in, in the horror game. Hey, things happen. I'm not going to say anything else, but I understand. Yeah, I guess, I guess the, the way I was hearing people feeling would be as if we were looking at a, a black couple and the rest of the world was white. That's mm-hmm. how they were reacting to it. Mm. That, that the actions, therefore, of that couple had a different meaning than if there had been a lot of films where such couples were embraced and celebrated and there were not problems in the world. That, in other words, they were behaving the way heterosexual viewers would want them to behave rather than what is actually organic for their behavior, according to several people whose oh, I see what you're saying. I looked I at there. I, it was, you know, I don't want to I don't want to say any more about that, but that I think that it was a really good movie, but I also think that their complaint is not it's, it's they're not blowing smoke. There is like it was heteronormative in that way. It was it was very heteronormative in the same way that an awful lot of black people in horror movies have been white normative. Got it. it. Was, you know, it was made for the for the for the heterosexual gaze. Got it. Got it. And also not to dismiss also the fact that there's an Asian American child lead. <laughs> So so that, too, was part of what was going on in my head as I was reading the novel and feeling just like this growing sense of dread, wanting everybody to win and feeling like, I don't know if everybody can win. So right. so that's horror. And but it's still it's a strong film. So check it out. And what, what's your opinion? Knock it the cabin. What's your next one, honey? Um, Wrath of Becky. Now, this is pretty light stuff. I mean, there was a movie called Becky. And it was about a little girl who survives a home invasion situation with Kevin James as as the thug, which was really right. great casting against type. And she acts, you know, what they don't realize is that she is a homicidal sociopath, barely leashed. And they it turns into, you know, a cross between I spit on your grave and home alone. I mean, it's... <laughs> It's it's really you know it 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 really is if you get on the wavelength of watching this little girl you know bring death and destruction to this group of 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 white supremacists or whatever it is it's a it's a hoot and a holler and Wrath of Becky is just the sequel to that the girl is older this time but it's a similar enough situation that they can repeat those beats. And, you know, it's it's never going to be on anybody's list of memorable films in, in, in that way. But it is fun. And it's a lot of fun, really. Great. I'm surprised you didn't take this next one. 
I am not as big a fan of this franchise as you are, but I thought this movie was fantastic. Evil Dead Rise. Frankly, yeah, it was good. It was really the, good. The first 15 minutes alone, like leading to the opening or 10 minutes leading to the opening credits, I had already gotten my money's worth. I mean, yeah. honestly. So it's that. It's like I think the they did a fine job. Best opening sequence I've seen in a horror movie in a long time. And, and pulled it off genuinely scary, like literally frame by frame. If you had a gallery of photographs, there is almost something scary or full of dread and texture and mood in every single shot of Evil Dead, right? It it is micro-horror as well as macro-horror. And they wrap it up nicely. They bring the beginning together. uh, Yeah, yeah, they really do. Yeah, I don't want to say more about that. Yeah, but it is. Again, it has that that kick in the stomach feeling at the end that you get in Talk to Me as well. So okay. very well, well done. Speaking of franchises, let's talk about Saw 10, which was, in my mind, another disappointment. Yeah. There were some very good things going on in, in it. They worked really well. But I felt queasy on a couple of counts. The question of who survives and who dies struck me as not following the same moral rules that the earlier movies did. And when you add in the fact that there seemed to be some selection going on according to ethnicity, Mm -hmm. I felt very uncomfortable. And Uh, not, yeah, not only the ethnicity, but people who are sort of struggling in society, a sex worker, for example, you know, very uncomfortable for me in that regard. I thought my biggest discomfort going in was going to be that the filmmakers were going to expect me to empathize with this murdery guy. And I was very defiant throughout going, well, I still don't like you. Okay. Yeah. That's messed up, but I still don't like you and you're messed up and you're a murderer. They do wear you down on that front after a while that there is, I can see a point where I let's let's say basically the plot is, and this is in the, in the trailer Sure, that the, you know, that the guy, the saw guy, I forget his, I forget his name, right? John something or other is dying of cancer. Mm. And he goes to a fake cancer clinic in Mexico. And when he finds out that he was conned, he wreaks revenge. That's, that's basically the setup. So if you've had a loved one who's sick, you yourself have been sick. It's, very hard not to be like indignant and enraged just like him. So I could feel myself being pulled into his camp and and wanting to root for him, which I, I was fighting so hard against. But because of the way the killings were laid out, and as Steve said, there was a certain sameness to the way the killings were laid out and one huge oversight in terms of who really needed to die. I have to give that one a fail for being tropey and not not good. Yeah, I I I feel uncomfortable when I can I feel like there are decisions going on that mirror uncomfortable value preferences on the part of the filmmaker. You Especially know, those that are rising in their political volume right now. I'm not going to say that it caters to those voices, but let's just say that people who are of that persuasion would not be at all offended by this film. Right. Right. So what's your next one? I thought that was mine. Oh, so, you're next. You're next. Yeah, I have to do Evil Dead. Yeah. Okay, that's right. You, you did You did Evil Dead, but then we did Saw. I know I said Saw. 
Oh, you said so, so, so it is me. So okay. Um, I think probably because I think I like this one more than you did. I'm going to say No One Will Save You, which is streaming, I believe, on Hulu. I'm going to check. Remind me, remind me of the story. This is the one that has no dialogue. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, right, yeah, exactly. I, I think I would have liked that better in the movie theater. I was watching sure. it kind of at second attention and without the dialogue, I didn't get pulled in as deeply. But I don't yes. blame the movie for that. I, I think that that was me. I'd be willing to watch it again. Yeah, it's on Hulu, and I agree. It's much more immersive to sit in a theater and watch a film like this. The reason yeah. I guess I like it is because it kind of defied my low expectations in the sense that all I heard about it was there's no dialogue, which immediately made my gimmick, gimmick, gimmick alarm go off. But I have to admit, I didn't feel it. I did not feel that it was a gimmick. And because of that, I could just relax into the film. And yes, I think at one point, Jordan Peele told someone, or we heard Jordan Peele told someone that horror is is all like this sort of the soundscape. And this is soundscaping a... Soundscape uh, and camera music angles. Music and camera angles, I think. Soundscape and camera angles. And yeah. this movie was full of all kinds of interesting soundscape that was not dialogue and camera angles. And it's isolation horror, which is my jam. So I really did like, I really did like that movie. Yeah. And you know, and no I think, one will save you. Sorry, I just want to say the title one more time. <laughs> I think that my last choice is probably going to be Renfield, which I thought was great fun. If you got into the right mood, it had a totally unhinged Nicolas Cage's Dracula performance, and it was it it it, it was mean and nasty, and it wasn't serious enough to to be really scary. It did get into gross, and it did get into creepy, and it's it's fun. So I, I would recommend it if you like, you know, as a horror comedy that leans a little bit more towards the horror than the comedy. I think it works pretty well. I loved it. It was a great ride in the movie theaters. I, I hope it would be as much fun streaming, but we absolutely went to see it on a big screen. Nicolas Cage lately has always been fun. I wouldn't say that that when you look at his entire filmography that he's always bringing his A-game, but he was having a blast, it seemed, in Renfield. I felt like there were stakes that were real and that were high, and I had a great time. In fact, we're going to watch that one again. Okay, great. So my last one from 2023 is going to be The Last Voyage of the Demeter. Yeah. Which I think flew under the radar with the both the SAG strike and the WGA strike. A lot of films didn't get the kind of love and play they should have in 2023. I would say The Angry Black Girl and Her Monster is one a lot of people are listening right now are going to be like, I've never even heard of that. And this is one, even though it was a, a big budget film... <laughs> <laughs> that I think also not enough people heard about, but it is a vampire story at sea. And that's really all I'm going to say about it. It it co-stars someone that we've kind of gotten to know in the very small Hollywood family that is horror, David Desmachian, who is, who is appearing in a, a lot of movies. He was in The Boogeyman also earlier this year. He's in, there's a talk show movie that's coming out later. Anyway, he's just sort of a rising star right now in, in creepy town. But the actual protagonist is Corey Hawkins, in my view, who is black, yeah. <laughs> which I, and okay, pleasant surprise, was not expecting that from the trailer. <laughs> and it was just also a genuinely scary premise when you have Dracula on a ship, what do you do? Yeah, I think that in that, in this case, 
it was another instance of them trying to do colorblind casting, but ultimately not being able to do it. You can't really do it at that at that time and place. And I could I could feel just a little bit of what I felt was missing, but they couldn't go there. I mean, it, it, the what's what's missing is when you have a a male and female lead is the spark between them. Uh, that is that yes. is a traditional part of movies, especially movies in which people's lives are at stake because sex is a continuation of life. It, it represents that. So you can almost always find those romantic under undercurrents and they couldn't go there in that particular sense. So you could feel that sort of come hither, go away. At least, at least I could. Mm. And I think that that lacking that dynamism and lacking being able to humanize him in that way. And they were kind of stuck a little bit. They're trying to do something good and they mounted it well. And I think that overall it works well, but I think this is one that's probably going to be looked back on with greater respect than it was treated upon initial release. That this is one of those movies. It is sort of from the op from the alternate world. I would agree. It is and from the, the, and the world. market wasn't quite ready for it, and the filmmakers were had some unconscious aversion patterns. And I, I, I well, I, not dealing with it. I would say, you know, yeah, just but, sort of but not. You see, dealing to with me, it. that's what I say. It is. Yeah, you know, it is unconscious aversion. On conscious level, they thought, "Let's do this good thing." On an unconscious level, they were saying, "Ick," you know, and mm. that that drives choices that they make. That's just kind of the way I look at it. And to me, that's a positive thing. They're trying to move beyond unconscious automatic preferences. And the only way this is going to happen effectively and elegantly is, you know, there are going to be a dozen awkward examples first. The fact that that people are trying it right now says a lot about where our society is in a positive way. You know, we're not all the way there yet. But I think we're approaching safe harbor in terms of of some of these social questions we're asking. So, you know, that's kind of my thought about it. Great. That director is Andre Overdahl. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He's a Norwegian director. He also did The Autopsy of Jane Doe, which is a great little low-budget horror, and Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, which was also... Very scary, considering that I'm not even in the the demographic for that film necessarily. At the, I, at the right here at the end, because we've run out of our favorite movies in 2023, I want to tack on a couple that came out later in 2022 and did not make it into our podcast last year on our recommended horror movies for Halloween. One is Nanny by Nikiatu Jusu, which is still on Amazon. This is textured, rich horror isolation horror about an African nanny who is working for a white family and the visions that she has, water metaphor throughout the film. This is which, you know, I know people hate the term elevated horror, so I shouldn't even use it, but it's arty. Let's call it arty horror that is very effective, very affecting. And she is definitely a director that I want to keep an eye on. Also. Barbarian, which is set in Detroit, also has a black lead, although that, again, could be colorblind casting. I think it's sort of a nod to the fact that it's set in Detroit, maybe, that she's yeah, even black. I think black. That you can cast black female leads more colorblind 
because it's more it doesn't cause as much culture shock to see them, you know, striking sparks with a with a white man than if, if you did it in reverse. It doesn't it doesn't create the same level of discomfort. Ah, right. And and it kind of plays at the edge of tropes. Again, this is one of those movies that when a random Black protagonist shows up, I'm on edge. What are they going to do? How are they going to make her a trope? How are they going to make her a sacrifice? How are they going to, you know, but actually, I just rewatched it recently. It holds up. It is scary. It has layers and levels. It's a little bit like Psycho and the sense that the story you think you're watching turns into a different story entirely until those stories combine. So, yeah, absolutely. Barbarian was one of my favorites from not 2023, but from 2022. You know, I think that anybody who has been listening to this has to notice how much ethnicity winds in this. And I think that people who have enjoyed this list might be interested in the black in your black horror class. I think that that for Halloween, there'd be nothing wrong whatsoever with letting people know where they can get that and what it is. Well, as you call it mine, but it's ours. It started because I teach black horror at UCLA. I'm teaching it currently. And we got such a great response, or I got such a great response from that class. Everybody like, how can I take it? How can I take it? It's called The Sunken Place, based on Jordan Peele's Get Out, obviously, that Steve and I created an online version of my Black Horror class, which is the history of Black Horror, the tropes, works that we enjoy, some books for homework, some movies for homework, some of which you've seen, some of which you have no idea. Who knew that W.E.B. Du Bois, the turn-of-the-century anti-lynching activist, essayist, and co founder of the NAACP, also got his horror science fiction on in a short story called The Comet, which is part of our online course. So if you're curious and want to know, like, wow, there's a lot of Blackness showing up in horror out there screaming. Jordan Peele just released that anthology of Black horror that I have a short story in called The Writer. If you're really curious about this movement of the subgenre of Black horror, and you want to know more about the roots of the subgenre of Black horror, definitely go check out www.sunkenplaceclass.com. It's a digital download course, just like all of our courses. You take it at your own pace. Jordan Peele actually appeared on one of our lectures, Skyped in. So this will date it. It was before Zoom took over. How did you drop that bag, Skype? You had you had the bag and you dropped it and you let Zoom take it. But anyway, Jordan Peele Skyped in. So check out sunkenplace.com. Uh, something place class rather.com. And as always, if you are a writer, whether it's a prose writer or a screenwriter, and you're looking for a 52 week, almost like a coach, because every module comes in to remind you, you're supposed to be in this course. You're supposed to be working on your work. You're supposed to be writing one sentence a day. Obviously check out our flagship course, which is life writing premium at www.lifewritingpremium.com. Well, that's all there is for today. You know, yep. I'm looking, I'm glad that we're ramping up for Halloween. But yes! the weekend is about to begin. Let's get the crap out of the kids this year. Everybody, go on and make yourself the hero or heroine of your own story. The hero in the adventure of your lifetime. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. One day we'll have applause. It'll, it'll pop up eventually. But there it is. I don't know what the audience is on this week. All right. You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life.